So these, these curses against the scribes and the Pharisees are for their practices. They are for their hypocrisy. And these ones, that, yeah, we'll talk about them as we get there. So I'm, I'm going to ask you all if, if you found uh, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 16, if you would stand with me. That'll let me know if you found it or not. And if you haven't found it, it's up on the board too, so you can read it there. Question is if I can read it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, here's a, here's a woe upon my father for that astigmatism. Um, chapter 23, starting in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Anyone who swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by whom, him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, help us to recognize not only why Jesus is saying this about the Pharisees, but why it's important for the church today in the United States, for, for this church here in Gulfport to understand what the problem is with these actions. Father, help us to see ourselves in the words and the deeds of the Pharisees, that we could repent and make sure we don't go down that road. Father, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat before you all pass out from the heat. <laughs> yeah, we do have little hand fans. Does anybody want one? No? It is warm. So... The first of these two curses, the, the first of these two woes, as it's listed, have to do with taking oaths. How many of y'all have heard sermons on this before? How many of y'all have heard people pontificate on this before? This is why I don't take any oath. I don't swear anything. I don't. If they ask me to take an oath, then I have to say affirm. And, and, and how many of y'all realize that there are entire denominations and other groups that refuse to swear an oath because of this passage. Didn't know that. All right. This isn't the only time in his ministry that Jesus has talked about this. Uh, way back in, in, this was like a year and a half ago, when we first started in Matthew's Gospel, um, in chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, uh, starting in verse 33 of chapter 5, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, 
but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus says there in chapter 5, don't take an oath at all. And that's why there has been controversy about taking an oath or swearing an oath. Uh, When I enlisted for the Air Force all the way 26 years ago, almost to the, actually to the day, today, 26 years ago, when I swore that oath, they offered for people who would not take an oath, they offered the opportunity to affirm versus swear. So you may have heard people, do you swear or affirm that you will fill in the blank? Where's the other place that we hear people taking oaths in our society? In a courtroom, right? Place your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the whole truth, right? Nothing but the truth, unless you're a politician, so help you God, right? Jesus says don't take an oath. There are a lot of people who refuse to swear an oath whether it's a courtroom testimony, a military or a government service oath, they will not swear an oath at all based on that passage. However, this is another one of those places where just like just like I've said this probably enough times y'all are sick of hearing it, but I've got to say it again. Context, context, context. Just like buying real estate, the most important feature in real estate is location, location, location. The most important tool for interpreting Scripture is context, context, context. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament where it says, don't swear falsely. You know that command that says, do not bear false witness? What do we witness to? Things that we've seen, right? So the, the commandment against false witness has been generally taken to mean don't lie about things. That's not what it means. It means don't testify falsely. Don't tell your neighbor you saw somebody else steal something out of his yard if you didn't see it. Don't tell the police that you saw that car run the stop sign and cause the accident if that's not what you saw. Don't testify falsely. Don't swear falsely. Don't make an oath that you don't intend to keep. That's the point of chapter 23 here. Jesus is chastising the scribes and the Pharisees for teaching what kind of an oath is worthwhile and what kind of an oath can be escaped. If a person swears by the temple, that oath is null and void because you have no authority over the temple. You have no control over the temple. You you cannot swear by the temple. It's not yours. It's God's temple. So if you swear an oath by the temple, it is of no value. But if you swear an oath by the treasure in the temple, which you may have contributed to with your tithes and your offerings, well, then you have some ownership there, and so you can swear by that. Does that make any sense to you? No. Why would somebody come up with a doctrine like this? 
There's one reason. So they can get out of keeping an oath. Right? Because I can swear by the temple, and then when somebody tries to hold me to it, I can say, well, you know, I, was, I, I swore by the temple, and I can't be bound to that because the temple's not mine. But if I want them to swear an oath, and they start to swear by the temple, you need to swear by the gold that's in the temple. So I can hold people to a standard that I don't have to follow. This is what Jesus is talking about here. They, they taught that if you swear by the altar, it is of no value. The altar belongs to God. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar that you have brought, then you can be bound by that. This is all about getting out of your oath. Jesus poses the question, is it the gold in the temple or the consecration of the altar which makes the gift worthwhile? Is it the presence of God in the temple that makes the gold worthwhile? What does the gold mean if it's not in the temple? It's gold. So what? There's been a whole lot of advertisements going around about diamonds and how diamonds are so expensive because of marketing. Diamonds are actually extremely common in nature. They're hard to get to. But it's marketing that makes diamonds cost so much. That's the argument I'm going to use the next time we go to Mexico. So, um, the point here was not the rightness of taking an oath, but it was the rightness of keeping your promise. The rightness of doing what you said you were going to do. We tend to use oaths to make it appear that we really mean it, right? Now, those of you who have raised children, okay? And I know nobody nobody in here would ever do this. I swear I'm going to wash your mouth out. Why, why do we say that? Why do we say, I swear? That's an oath, right? Because we want that child to know, I mean it this time. The other 32 times I said I was going to do it, I didn't mean it. This time, I mean it. Maybe next time. Right? Jesus says, don't take an oath. If an oath is required for you to tell the truth about your intentions or to keep you from breaking a promise, just don't make the promise. Right? Whatever we swear by, it is God's. So if we do take an oath, I've done this so many times I can do it in my sleep. I do solemnly swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, yada, 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 so help me God. Right? Okay? At least in that oath, I say, so help me God. But if I am sitting in a courtroom, why the hell have you put your hand on the Bible? Because you're calling God as your witness, right? When I say the military oath, so help me God, who am I calling as my witness? God. If I swear on the temple, who am I calling as my witness? The one who dwells in the temple. If I swear on the altar, who am I calling as my witness? 
God, the one to whom the altar is dedicated and consecrated, right? Swearing an oath, even if I swear on my mother's grave. Sorry, she's right here. (laughs) Right? I swear on my mother's grave, I'm going to do something. On, on, On a plot of land? On a piece of dirt? Who owns that? God does. The, the cemetery administrators may think that they do, but, you know, they're going to die too, and you know what they're going to own? Nothing. That dirt's God's. He made it. He's got claim on it. Anything that I swear an oath on is God's. So anything that I swear an oath on, I am, I'm calling as God for my witness. Just like saying, so help me God. Let me ask you a question. This is a rhetorical question. That means I don't want your answer, okay? You don't have to answer this. It'll save you and me both some embarrassment, okay? Do we really want God to be the witness when we break our oath? (laughs) No! No! I... Would you want God to be the one to take the witness stand when you're being testified against by somebody that you promised to do something? Let's say, uh, I, I do solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, except that guy. Right? Do you really want God to be the one on the witness stand who says, well, see, he said he was going to defend the Constitution of the United States. But then he did this, which is in direct violation of the Constitution of the United States. That makes him one of the enemies, foreign and domestic. Right? Why would God make such a powerful witness? Because he's God, right? Omniscient, omnipresent. Here's how David puts it. No place I can go is away from you. If I go to the highest mountain... You are there. If I go to the deepest part of the sea, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. Right? See, there's always a possibility that a human witness blinked when something happened and they didn't see it. God don't blink. We really don't want God to be our witness. So why swear an oath that calls on God to be our witness. Because we are faithless and deceptive people. Lies flow from our lips like breath. A few years back there was a study, and I forget the statistic exactly, but it was it was like the average person tells... 35 lies a day. Now think about it. I don't lie that much. Really. Have you ever gone through an intersection where you know you had time to stop, but you didn't? And so as you're driving through, you may be the only person in the car, but you say, I didn't have time to stop. You ever done that? Am I the only person in this room that's ever done that? Okay. I'm only going to have one serving of potato chips. 
<laughs> right? Just, just one donut for me. I'm watching my weight. I'm watching it all right as it goes this way, right? We don't even think about the number of times that we lie. You're on the phone with somebody that you're supposed to be meeting. I'm on my way. You ain't even got your shoes on yet. Right? It, it, it comes natural to us because this is our nature. We are, by definition, liars. So why do we swear oaths? Because I want to convince the other liars that I'm talking to that I'm not lying. That's the whole reason we take an oath. I swear upon the altar in the temple. I swear by the heavens. I swear by the gold in the temple. I swear by the earth that's God's footstool. I swear by, I swear by, I swear by. Why would we do this? Because we want people to believe that I mean it this time. And so if I go back to chapter 5, everybody focuses on what Jesus says there. He says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And that's the part that everybody reads and they say, okay, Jesus said, don't take any oaths. And they stop reading. Where the most important part of that passage is the last sentence. Let what you say be simply yes or no. If you say you're going to do it, do it. If you have no intention of doing it, don't tell him you're going to do it. Period. If you don't have any intention, tell them, no, I'm not going to do it. Parents, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you tell them no, don't change your mind. If you tell them, yes, we're going to do, or we're going to get, then do it. Children, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Yes, I'm going to clean my room. Then you best clean it. By the way, you don't have the option of saying no. An oath should not be a requirement for us to keep our word. Now, remember who Jesus is talking to when he's given the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's really directing this towards his disciples. There's a large group of people that are there listening, and Jesus says that the majority of them are just listening for a good religious tale so they can walk away and have lunch and feel happy about it, right? They can leave and they say, man, that, that preacher really did a good job. And then 20 minutes later, they couldn't tell you what he was talking about. That's why he used parables. But the disciples that were sitting at his feet, that are listening, that have their ears open to hear this, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whoa. That's a difference in action, isn't it? That's not the way we normally operate. I tell people that I'm going to do something because I want them to feel good that they're going to get me to do something. I have no intention of doing it. Which y'all will owe me 500 bucks? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. <laughs> right? If an oath is spoken, and there are occasions where the law requires it, 
A Christian should not be afraid to to sit on the witness stand and to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth with God as their witness. Because we ought to be living our life before Christ with a clear conscience. And we ought to not be afraid to have God standing at the other side of the courtroom saying, yes, that's exactly what he saw. Yes, he told exactly the truth. The whole truth as he knew it. And nothing but the truth as he knew it. We should not have a problem should we decide to join the military. We should not have a problem swearing the oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So help me God. I should not be afraid of that day when I retire from military service or civil service or whatever, and God stands up and says, he did what he said. The Christian shouldn't have the hesitation. Now, if lying is a problem for you, then perhaps you shouldn't take an oath. If you have no intention of keeping it. That was the point of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount. That was the point of this curse. Remember that God is your witness. Now we move into the second curse. This is uh, uh, starting in verse 23. This is a short one. This is, this is the one place where Jesus actually commends the Pharisees. Let me read this passage to you again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He says, tithing on the mint and the dill and the cumin, good job. You should have done that. That's the requirement of the law. But you missed something. Now, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 23 that we looked at last week, Jesus is already talking about how the Pharisees and the scribes do their righteousness for the accolades that it affords them, for the notoriety that they get, for the place of honor that they get at the at the synagogue and at the the marketplace and and how everybody pats them on the back because their prayer shawls have such long tassels on them and they've got that Operation Christmas Child shoebox with the, the phylactery on their head and on their arm. Outwardly, they are super righteous. So when they bring their gift into the temple, you can bet, that they make sure everybody understands that those 35 clippings from dill and those 40 mint leaves, that is the first harvest off of their plants because that's God's portion. And You have no idea how hard it was for me to go through that dill and to make sure that the first one I clipped off of every plant was without blemish and was flawless and the the plants were healthy and there was nothing wrong with them and, and I did everything that God desires. Jesus says, good job. You did the bare minimum. Whoopee. Because they neglected 
the weightier part of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Justice is not something that we talk about very often, except in the context that grace means we don't get it. Right? Jesus took our penalty so that we don't have to. We escape justice because Jesus paid the price, right? So what is Jesus talking about when he says that they've neglected justice? He's talking about justice for the people who don't get justice. Not in a salvation sense, but he's talking about the widow and the orphan and the stranger in the land. And there's, there's a lot of application for this in the world that we live in today. Throughout the books of Moses, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, you see God's compassion and provision for those who have no advocate. Raise your hand if you've read the book of Ruth. Okay, most everybody's read the book of Ruth. So, for a synopsis, you have Ruth, uh, sorry, I'll backtrack. You have Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. Elimelech has two sons. There's a famine in the land. This happens during the time of the judges. Did you know that? Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. So this is when Israel is going through that cycle of everything's going good, so they start worshiping other gods, then they start seeing oppression, And then after they get oppressed long enough, they cry out to God for deliverance, and God raises up a judge, and the judge goes and kicks out the bad guys, and then they go back here to where they're they're peace and prosperity, and then they start worshiping other gods, and leather rinse repeat, right? So during the famine, the persecution, Elimelech, instead of doing what God tells him to do, he says, you know what? We're going to pack up and go to Moab. Now, I lived in Utah for a while. There's actually a city by the name of Moab. Okay? It's not a bad place if you like deserts. Lots of pretty rocks. Lots of heat. It is high desert. It is dry. Like the exact opposite of what we are in here today. It is dry. And it's, it's gorgeous, but it's hot. And it's, eh. Moab, in Israel's context was the land of their cousins. And Israel was forbidden to go to Moab to find wives for their children because when Israel was wandering through the wilderness, Moab said, you can't stop here. Keep going through. We're not going to help you. That's no way for a cousin to be, right? So Israel was expressly forbidden from taking spouses for their young men from the people of Moab. So what does Elimelech do with these two sons? He goes to Moab and he finds a pair of wives for them. Okay? So, the time comes for the judge to deliver the people. There's a battle. Elimelech is killed. His two sons are killed. So now we have three widows. We have Naomi, we have Orpah, and we have Ruth. Naomi is up in years. She's beyond childbearing. She actually qualifies for the status of widow. 
Orpah and Ruth are both in their probably late teens, early 20s. They are still of childbearing age. They could legally get remarried and have somebody to provide for them. And they're not from Israel. So Naomi says, go back to your families, find yourself a husband, and be cared for. I'm going to go back to my people. And Orpah says, peace, and goes back. Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. And so they travel back, and you know the story, right? And there's this guy, Boaz, who winds up marrying Ruth. Why? What was his role? He was the kinsman redeemer. He was a relative of Elimelech. He was a distant cousin, slightly more distant than the other guy who didn't want anything to do with Ruth. And so he married Ruth to carry on the family line of Elimelech and his sons. That's why at the end of the book of Ruth it says that uh, uh, when, when Ruth conceived and she bore the son, he was Naomi's son. He was raised as her child to carry on the family line, right? That provision for the kinsman redeemer, the, the leveret marriage, was a provision of justice for the widow who lost a husband without having a child. Also in the book of Ruth, you have Boaz's servants are out harvesting the field, and Naomi tells Ruth, Go harvest with them. Where is she supposed to harvest from? The corners. It was a process called gleading. And specifically in the books of the law, God says when you harvest your field, leave the corners. Why? So the widows and the orphans and the strangers in the land had some place where they could get food. And then you get the, the tithe. Everybody's big on the tithe these days. People in the church are either like super, the tithe is absolutely binding and you must tithe. And then you have those that are, well, the tithe was for the, the people of Israel. And well, here's the deal with the tithe, all right? Do a little bit of studying on it. It was actually closer to 35% by the time you got done. It was predominantly grain and livestock and Fruits and vegetables, not money, okay? But it was specifically to support who? The Levites and the priests, because where did they work? In the temple. If they're working in the temple, what can they not have time to do? They don't get to go raise a farm. They don't get to go, as a matter of fact, that was one of the complaints that God had against Israel, was they neglected the tithe, so the priests and the Levites, who were starving to death, said, you know what, I'll be bivocational and I'll go work over here on my farm. And then when the Sabbath rolls around, I'm at the temple. And they're neglecting their duties because the people aren't paying their tithe. And the widows would go to the temple for their portion. And the orphans would go to the temple. All throughout God's law, there is provision for the orphan and the stranger in the land and the widow. There were prov- <laughs> we don't like this. There were provisions for slaves. 
Slavery in the Bible is different than slavery in the United States. It's a different process. In the Bible, the reason you got sold into slavery was because you owed a debt. Okay? Anybody in here got a credit card? You're a slave. You got a car loan? You're a slave. You got a mortgage payment? You're a slave. If you have any kind of debt that you owe to somebody else, you are a slave to the person that you are in debt to. The difference is, back then, if you couldn't pay your debt off, they didn't send you a late notice. (laughs) They actually employed you working off your debt. Okay? If a person was sold into slavery, every seven years, what happened? They got released from slavery. They were released to go back to their farms. The debt was forgiven. It was gone. It was called the year of Jubilee, right? Uh, if a, a <laughs> if a slave was married, right? If a man got taken into slavery because he owed a debt, his wife would be brought with him. Believe it or not, that's an act of mercy because now she's provided for too because otherwise she's left trying to run the farm on her own without him for support. And let me tell you, back then, unattended women, fair game. Men in the military who had just gotten married were given like a year of free leave. I really wish the military would do that in the United States. And then everybody would be getting married. That would be terrible. But if you got married while you were in military service, there was time off. Why? So that you would have time to build a relationship with your wife and provide her with children and make sure she is cared for so that when you leave to go off to service, look, being in the military back then, being in the military now, it makes the news when somebody in the military dies today. If that military was in today's world, it would make news if nobody died. So when the man would go off to war, chances were he wouldn't come back. Why would it be important for her to have a child before he left? Because there's somebody to carry on his estate. That was an act of justice and mercy on the part of God. All throughout God's word is a story of mercy, a story of justice for those who have no justice. Look at what James says about the, uh, the, the favoritism in the church. Right? He says the rich people come in and you usher them to the front row. The homeless guy comes in and you tell them to sit in the back. Why? We're acting like the people that we're complaining about not giving us justice. We ought to be equal. A person comes into the church, they come into the church. Have a seat. Pick one. Take one. Throughout God's word, we see mercy and we see God's faithfulness. Just just think really, really, really quickly through the story of creation. God created Adam, Adam sinned. And yet he had a son who was faithful. Who had a son who was faithful. 
And even when mankind went off the rails and God destroyed all of creation with a flood, God was faithful and he brought one family through it. And through that one family, then we get to Abraham. What did Abraham have to offer God? Nothing. Was Abraham 100% faithful when he, when he was called by God? No. He didn't even make it out of the land of his fathers without breaking God's rules. God said, I want you to leave your father's house and go to a land in which I will show you. And after a couple of years, Abram says, okay, but I'm taking my nephew with me. He takes his father's house with him. The joy of being a nomad. But God is faithful. And even after Abram sins and sins and sins, God is still faithful. And then Isaac is born. And even after Isaac sins and sins and sins, God is faithful. And Jacob is born. And after Jacob sins and sins and sins and sins, we have his sons, Judah, from which Christ will come. We have Levi, where the priesthood comes from. We have Joseph, who preserved the family through God's faithfulness, right? You go through all 12, and they sinned, 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 and yet God still used them. Even going back to Ruth, Elimelech sinned and took wives from the people of Moab for his sons. And because of God's faithfulness, Ruth is in Jesus' family tree. Rahab, Bathsheba. David had an affair, but God is faithful. All of God's word is a picture of mercy and faithfulness. And then we get the justice, the gospel. When you think about the gospel, you think of grace and mercy, right? What if I told you that the gospel is the greatest picture of justice ever? Can someone sin and not be punished? No. The wages of sin is what? Death. Period. But we don't receive that wage. Why? Because Jesus did. God's justice is satisfied. All of what Jesus taught for the church, all of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, the writer of Hebrews, recorded for us in the 27 books of the New Testament is to instruct us in how to seek justice for the oppressed, to show mercy to the downtrodden, to be faithful to the gospel that we have as a gift to share with the world. All of it. Jesus said the Pharisees would strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Instead of following the bigger part of God's story, which is to care for those who are in need, to take care of those who have problems, who have hardships, the Pharisees were busy cutting their dill plants and their cumin and their mint. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't buy groceries for you this week. It has to go to the church. 
That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Why does this matter to us? Well, over in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that has determined that anything that they can do wrong, they will. I'm just saying, every, everything that could go wrong in a church, everything they could do wrong in a church, they did wrong. They were divided depending on who they listened to as a teacher. They were divided based on spiritual gifts. They were divided based on worship. They were divided on everything. They had, as Paul puts it, basically forgotten everything about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I want you to keep this in mind. Most scholars agree that Paul wrote the letter, the first letter to the Corinthian church, somewhere in the mid-50s A.D. Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 A.D. People who had seen Jesus after his resurrection were still walking around telling people about Jesus when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Eyewitnesses were still testifying about the truth of what Jesus taught and what he did when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 25 years, and the church had gone so far off the rails. You remember in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where, where Paul says in verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Sounds a lot like Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees about their, their, their teaching is okay in some places, but don't do their behavior, right? You should tithe on the herbs in your garden, but you should also take care of the bigger things in the law. He says, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for better, but for worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? The point there was not the appropriateness of fellowship in the church with food. The point there was they were neglecting justice and mercy. See, everybody would bring to the feast. You ever been to a church potluck? Yeah, you ever been to one? Right? You ever show up to a church potluck without the ability to bring something? How do you feel at that potluck? It's very common at that sort of a function where the person who didn't have anything to bring, I'm going to hang out over here on this side of the room and I'll take up the tail end of the line. I'll, I'll, whatever scraps are left up front, I'll go ahead and I'll just, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'm, I'm not all that hungry. Just go ahead, get in, get in line. Go ahead. Right? So this is what's happening in Corinth. 
the rich people in Corinth, it's a port city, right? They make lots of money. The rich people in the Corinthian church are coming in and they've got casks of wine and, and loaves of bread and platters of meat. And so they're laying them out on the buffet table. And then the middle class come in and they've got their, you know, their, their stovetop stuffing and, and their, you know, craft macaroni and cheese and, and they lay that out on the table. And then the homeless folks that come to the church are over here. I don't have anything to bring. So they stand along the side of the room. And I'll just wait for everybody else. Well, the rich people that brought the cask of wine, when they get up there in line, what are they doing? I'm going to tap the cask. I'm going to fill up my goblet. I might fill up a second one. This is for, this is for them. Right? And I've got my platter of food, and I'm going to make a feast. In fact, they're the people that go through the line eating half of the food as they go through the line. And by the time the people who didn't have anything to bring get from the end of the line up to the table where the bread and the wine that represent Christ's body and blood where they get to that part of the line, guess what there is for them? Nothing. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, when you, have, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, it ain't the Lord's Supper. It's, it's, a, it's a gorge fest. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Why is it important for us to understand the woe upon the Pharisees for not paying attention to the weightier matters of the law? I I don't do this very often. I, I don't like to do this. But I live in a world that has a here and now. There has been a lot of discussion over the last couple of weeks. A lot of discussion about immigration policies in the United States and the appropriateness of doing this, not doing that. Right? Regardless of what my position is on it, regardless of the legality of it, regardless of the rightness of it, if any one of us could look at a situation, whether it was deserved or not deserved, whether it was legal or not legal, whether it was right or not right, could look at a situation where a family was truly, honestly divided because of this immigration situation that we have, and not be heartbroken, I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. Period. If you're not writing to Congress people, if you are not having conversations with your friends and with your neighbors about how the gospel should impact this, you're wrong. Period. The reason it's important for us to know what Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees is because we, as the conservative church in the United States, are about a half a shoelace width, width, not length, away from being Pharisees ourselves. We come to church on Sunday. We might even come Sunday night if there's a service available. We might even come on Wednesday. We sing the songs. We put our 20 bucks in the plate. We even take the Lord's Supper. But what do we do with justice for those who need justice? 
What do we do for mercy? How do we show mercy to people? Better question, do we show mercy to people? What do we do with the weightier parts of the law? I'm not saying, look, Jesus commended them for bringing the herbs into the temple. He said you ought to do that. So I'm not telling you to stop putting money in the plate, please. We, we got a $1,500 repair on the septic system that needs to be paid for. We've got at least one air conditioner that is probably not going to make it through this summer. <laughs> I'm not telling you to stop bringing your tithes. I'm not telling you to stop doing the things that you're doing. Bring your dill and your mint and your cumin. That's figurative. Peggy does not need to be counting herbs in the plate. But don't neglect the weightier parts of the law. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was probably a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Why do I bring them up? Because there was redemption for them too. Just like there was redemption for the Corinthian church. See, Paul's letter to the Corinthians was a letter of correction. And after he chastises them for the way they were approaching the Lord's Supper, he then says in in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. When he gave thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the, the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, church in Corinth, not necessarily Gulfport, unless it flies. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So as we get ready to distribute the elements, and I'll come around and pass them out to everybody. As we go into our time of quiet prayer, Jesus, through Paul, says, Examine yourself. So if there's any areas where you are ignoring the weightier parts of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, if there are places where you know you are not in obedience to what Christ has called us to do, now's your time to pray and to repent. And if, when I get to you with the elements you cannot take with a clear conscience, that's okay. I would rather you didn't. There is no judgment for passing up the plate. But there is judgment for taking it in an unworthy fashion.
Let's have a time of quiet prayer. And I ask you to examine yourself. Ask God to show you what you need to confess and repent from.